Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts, Paul Anderson, here with Pete Wall again. Pete, I say again every week. How are you, sir? Regular feature, mate. Yeah. I'm actually <laughs> part of the show, and you're just going to have to deal with that fact. Uh, yes, I am very, very well, sir. I'm very well. I'm looking forward to doing one of these. I'm a bit charged up, Paul, if I'm honest, because I've just had both a LucasAide and a cup of coffee. Oh, so shit. So watch out. <laughs> yeah. I'm, at the, I'm at the kind of tail end of a cold. Um, I refuse to have a cold for more than about a day and a half. So I've been knocking it on the head with like lots of water, LucasAid, and less so, I guess, coffee. But uh, at this point, I think the end is in sight. So I know, was it on the last record where you were under the, the, the one before suffering? last? Yeah, the one before right. last, where I wasn't feeling, where I wasn't feeling the best. So uh, yeah, that lasted more than a day and a half. I'll be honest, but maybe I should just savage it with LucasAid in future. I'll take that. I'll take that under advisement, Pete. <laughs> my, honestly, mate, my my real medical advice would be if you get a cold, and anybody listening can take this advice. It's free. I don't want anything for it. It's fine. Drink like six liters of water in the day. You're going to have to be in your house. You're going to need the bathroom a lot. But if you just keep <laughs> drinking water, it disappears. Not enough people seem to know this about colds. You don't have to suffer with them anymore. So that's solved. On to the show. Okay, um, now we've cured and solved the common cold. Yeah, what have we got What have we got coming up this week? Show about films, guys, if you haven't listened to it before. Not medical advice. Um. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But this show will be just the tonic, you guys. Just the tonic. Um, what we have today is a show that is hung on a feature review of The Aeronauts. The Aeronauts, of course the new hot air balloon adventure that's in cinemas near you right now. In addition to that, though, this week, as we often do, we've got a top five. This week's top five ties into the feature because we've got top five films about flying or flight films. You choose, and I'll have to choose when I upload this episode eventually. (laughs) Uh, In addition to the feature and the top five, as always, we've got coming attractions previewing films coming out this week. We've also got popcorn movies reviewing the stuff that we watched recently. And before all of that, Paul, we have got in the foyer, which is the section of the show where we talk about film news. What's the film news, Paul Anderson? Uh, It doesn't come much bigger than this for me personally, anyway. Um, A new Paul Thomas Anderson film has been announced. Um, There's no title to this film yet uh, but from what I can glean from it from a number of websites uh, it's set in the 1970s San Fernando High School uh, Pete do you know anything more about it than this but it's a new Paul Thomas Anderson film Pete so this is great news <laughs> yeah I mean that's the headline isn't it P.T. Anderson's doing another film uh, we are led to believe it's going to come out next year um, fingers crossed on that one because we're only hearing about it now and we're at the tail end of 2019 um, it's Paul Thomas Anderson's fifth consecutive period film his sixth period film in total you said yeah it's set in the San Fernando Valley of course this is the area where Paul Thomas Anderson grew up Um, we've also had Boogie Nights Magnolia and Punch Drunk Love all set in that part of the United States Um, and the third feature from P.T. Anderson to take place in the 70s after Boogie Nights and of course Inherent Vice which I really liked Mm. and the other day I saw someone on Twitter saying it doesn't get enough love and I thought yes I need to raise that again it doesn't get enough love but the last time out we saw of course Phantom Thread um, from P.T. Anderson and we were both pretty glowing about that one and then his films have also come up I think on a couple of top fives um, in terms of things like uh, There Will Be Blood in particular I had Punch Drunk Love on on one of my lists recently so yeah I think both of us are very much on board with whatever he does next and this one will be no different do you think realistically we'll see it next year Paul um I mean he seems to be 
He's he's working at quite a pace at the moment. I think he put out the anima the anima short film on Netflix for the uh, Tom York album. He's been banging out some home music videos at pretty good pace. So, I th- I don't think we'll see it in the UK next year. I think we'll end up having it January twenty twenty one, which is what they seem to be doing with all the films that I want to see this year at the moment. Uh, that's a whole nother it's a whole nother topic. Uh, yeah, I think probably very back end of next year. I think there's a chance that that we'll see a US release anyway. It- is it going to get, it's probably, now that I've just thought about it, going to be London Film Festival next year? Quite possibly. I yeah. would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, which like is that, yeah. sort of October time, isn't it? So, yeah, then that would hint at a release that will actually be into 2021. I mean, we don't know. We're not something stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not claiming to be the absolute experts on release dates of movies, particularly from, you know, enigmatic folk like Paul Thomas Anderson. But, like, whenever it is, we'll be clamouring for it. Obviously, we'll feature it on the show and obviously we'll tie in some reverential time top five about you know most perfect Paul Thomas Anderson scenes or something like that off the back of it so it's a lot to look forward to I think on on that front with uh, P.T. Anderson less so with the other uh, Paul Anderson not yourself Paul but the WS variety who is he still doing he's stuff? He's working on Monster Hunter at the moment which I think is in post-production is. yeah which is a game not famed for its strong narrative uh, points a very good game I hasten to add but yeah not famed for its strong narrative so yeah uh, less excited about Paul W.S. Anderson and obviously uh, you know the uh, the other Paul Anderson that features heavily on this show, his latest output is always very exciting. So, but now I'm talking about myself. And then, of so. course, <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, of course, there was that movie uh, called something like Sweet Virginia or something that had in it the actor Paul Anderson. There's an actor called there Paul is, Anderson. Yeah, he's also well, I remember Peaky pointing Blinders, out at the time. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So they're they're all over the place. Yeah. It's becoming all the rage to be yeah. called Paul Anderson. <laughs> but yeah, uh, until we get the next P.T. Anderson, you've got to make do with the Paul Anderson on this show and the rest of the content that we have in, coming into your ear holes in the next hour or so, I guess. So we should probably leave this little chat, Paul, and get into popcorn movies, if you're okay with that. Yes, I very much look forward to it. And that'll be after this very brief break. So the reason why we've absolutely bludgeoned through the foyer section of the show today is because we've got a bit of a bumper popcorn movie section in which we need to fit as many short form reviews as possible just because I think both of us have seen a lot. Paul, you in particular, you've been at the Bath Film Festival this yeah, week. So, yeah, film, film Bath 2019 as, it, as it's called. Um, yeah, there have been a number of screenings uh, over the past week and they've got a couple more left to come. So yeah, it's been quite exciting to see previews, um, to see previews of films, uh, to see some different films that don't normally get a release that's always quite nice um so yeah it's it's great living it's great having it and more you know, more power to the, the guys that put it on it's fantastic so yeah there's a couple of films here that i've seen there um culminates this week at least this weekend in a very much advanced preview screening of jojo rabbit which is very exciting but i will save that for a future show whether it's when it's on general release so yeah very very excited to see that but yeah it's been it's been good it's been good I, yeah i've been to the cinema I feel like I'm getting back into the rhythm of going to the cinema a lot again, so that's always a winner. So yeah, yeah, it's been yeah. good. Um, the first of which uh, I wanted to talk about, I have seen there, is on general release tomorrow, although I think quite limited when we were having a look before the show. Um, this is a film called Little Monsters, which is a horror comedy uh, directed by... I'm going to take a punt that the director is Australian, an Australian called Abe Forsyth. Um, this stars uh, Lupita Nyong'o as a sort of a nursery school teacher um, who ends up sort of well, fall, falling for this sort of this bumbling Australian guy who's a father of one of the children that she teaches, um, and they end up 
in a confrontation with some zombies, um, which are unleashed from, I think, a US a US experiment or the, the typical kind of where zombies come from kind of fair. So, um, yeah, for the most part, uh, we've got Josh Gad on support here as well, who's the voice of Olaf the Snowman in Frozen. So, for the most part, I think I, I had fun with this. Um, it's a mostly enjoyable, if inconsistent, horror comedy. Um, Lupita Nyong'o is brilliant in it, as as one might expect. Um, as is Alexander England, Alexander England, who plays the kind of the hero, the 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 dad, the, the down and out dad of the situation, falls for Lupita Nyong'o. Um, who wouldn't fall for Lupita Nyong'o? In all honesty, um, she's very very charming here. The practical effects are good. There's some laughs to be had. There's an absolutely incredible, uh, incredible set piece. Very very charming set piece of a kid dressed as Darth Vader trying to fend off zombies. That was great. Um, the only thing I really didn't like about this was the Josh Gad performance. Just like, look, we get it. You're making Olaf the snowman swear. It wasn't very funny, and I could have done with the film. Whole film for me could have done without Josh Gad, but it's fun. If you do, if you do get a chance to see it, it's worth a watch. It's it's enjoyable enough. Uh, there we go. Quick, short form enough for you, Pete. Over to you. <laughs> that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Yeah, first for me, uh, this one is Anna, which is the next or most recent output from Luc Besson as writer director, uh, following up on Valerian, the city of a thousand CGI special effects, or that one. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, Anna now, would you believe it, Paul? Anna is about a beautiful female uh, assassin. What? You'd never guess no. from, from <laughs> Luke Besson. Yeah, what you've got is a kind of nuts and bolts espionage thriller, um, a bit of, not really stunt casting, but interesting casting in that you've got Luke Evans, Helen Mirren in particular, and Killian Murphy playing various roles on either side of the espionage here. The central role is occupied by an actress called Sasha Luss, who is a model-turned-actor, which is convenient here because she's got the sort of frame um, that does not at any point in this movie convince you that she could take anyone on in hand-to-hand combat without snapping in half. <laughs> um, again, this sort of illustrates in a slight, at times kind of depressing way Besson's infatuation with high couture models and slick action being thrown in for good effect. And I say in a slightly depressing way because there is something just sort of leery and basic and teenage about the way this is both written and at times directed. It feels like something that I might have written as a sort of horny 14 year old, right, you know, okay. <laughs> but this is a man, I don't even know what age Luke Besson's got to be, be 60, 60 yeah, something yeah, like that be. now. Um, I've just seen this described somewhere, I think on Letterboxd, by, by a creative soul as uh, atomic bland, and that's not, <laughs> it's not too bad of a description here. Although I should say that there are a couple of standout set pieces in it, not least one where the assassin Anna enters a restaurant, she's got one target and an unloaded gun. She doesn't know it's unloaded at that point, but it becomes important. And during the course of targeting and taking out this one individual, she kills dozens of people, and she uses things that I'm going to call here coat jitsu, and plate quando, uh, using like a fragment of a plate to slice up about four or five people and a coat to strangle a few fools. It's it's pretty entertaining stuff. And we know that Luke Besson can do, you know, high octane action with some of the best of them. In terms of like modern filmmaking, I would say, even given the drawbacks of some of the movies. Um, but yeah, th- there's no real reason to buy into the central character. Like I say, she's very, very flimsy looking. That's not her fault, but why... why deprive somebody who's actually athletically gifted of a role like this in favour of 
uh, a thin, you know, you know, almost anorexic looking model type. Uh, why? Because Luke Besson. Uh, that one's Anna and it came out this year. <laughs> what have you got next, Paul? Uh, next up, I've got uh, something that I didn't watch at the film festival. Actually, I watched on movie. I literally finished about five minutes before I came up and logged into Skype, Pete. Uh, this is A Dog Called Money, the new documentary from director Seamus Murphy, who is a photographer. Uh, this work. It's about PJ Harvey, a company's PJ Harvey, um, on a journey on a journey around the world through to Syria, through Washington to Kosovo, uh, to a number a number of I'd say sort of deprived, some war torn areas for inspiration for the the album, the Hope Six Demolition Project, which is a wicked album. If you haven't heard it, you absolutely should check it out. PJ Harvey's a musician I'm a big fan of, um, so I was very very much looking forward to this film. I'll be honest. Um, and in fairness, Pete, it, it let me down a little bit. I, I'd have to say, I just think there's 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 so it, it cuts from her on her journeys to witnessing these these as I said deprived perhaps war torn places, um, and you can hear that she's she's got the she's doing the voiceover, and you can hear that she's taking inspiration from these things, which is great to see, like the creative process between the creative process of an artist that you really really like, um, and some of the stuff that you see in the studio is is quite is quite well done and quite interesting. It's great to watch PJ Harvey perform wherever you see PJ Harvey perform. So those bits, those bits are, are, are well handled. But for me, there just isn't enough time in these little, in the kind of the the flashbacks, for want of a better word, to to or, or the or the journey she was on. There isn't enough time spent with the documentary subjects in each in each of the areas she visits. So I don't really know what this was trying to say. And I, I've read this, I've read this more than once. Um, I did a bit of reading on this before the show. And, there's a, and I kind of agree with a lot of the critics. So it's kind of it's almost like misery tourism, where there's there's almost no point to the scenes that that, that she's showing. Um, some people have argued it kind of it looks a bit like it comes across a bit like she's playing like the privilege card, where she's going from these war torn locations or deprived locations immediately back to having a great time in a custom built studio in Somerset House. I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't think that's the intention of the film at all. For me, just the the documentary bits, so the bits where she is on she is out. On a jer- on her journey, taking photographs and getting inspiration, they just weren't they weren't engaged enough. There wasn't enough to them. She almost like tried to pack too much into this ninety minute film, and ultimately, I came away yeah quite disappointed with this. In all honesty, I was expecting to like it, and and I didn't love it. I didn't love it. Hmm. Yeah, you're not the first uh, reviewer that I've heard say things that were a bit middling to negative about this documentary but I'll have to catch up with it and decide for myself as well I, I, I suppose like many people I'm I wouldn't say I'm a massive PJ Harvey fan but well aware of her work and and I like quite a bit of it so it'll be worth it I think for sure yeah. Um, second for me this week, I've got one that I've caught up with. If Beale Street Could Talk, this is the follow-up to Moonlight from director Barry Jenkins, um, starring Kiki Lane, Stephen James, Regina King, Tiona Paris, and um, to the to the goal of, I think yourself, Paul, uh, Dave Franco. Yes. And Ed, Ed Screen, M- more on him later. But oh, Two of, uh, two of my favourite fo- people in this film, yeah. <laughs> and, and Diego Luna, I should say, in terms of people that... It will be recognisable, Diego Luna as well. Um, yeah, following on from the runaway success and acclaim of Moonlight, this film underlines, for me, I think, the sort of specificity of what it is that Barry Jenkins does, like his approach to filmmaking, because it's so um, lyrical and tender and um, at times very, very gentle. But then in this film, you've got something that maybe you didn't have as much of in Moonlight, like um, the absolutely vicious argument that takes place in between uh, families it, when it comes to 
the fact that the central character is at the age of I think 19 has fallen pregnant to a man who is wrongly convicted of a crime that it seems like he very apparently didn't do um, and the family are told this news and there are dissenting words on one side and defensive words on the other side and wow it gets spicy in there um, but yeah there's just this kind of artfulness and grace all over the work here in terms of the 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 way that you just want to exist in these environments. I mean, even when people are arguing, just being there feels something of a privilege. And that sounds like a little bit of a, a maybe a lovey thing to say about a, a movie like this, but I was really, really impressed with it. And so I would expect to have been, I guess, having seen Moonlight and liked it so much. Um, so yeah, really, really good. If you like Moonlight, and this one I think flew a little bit more under the radar maybe for people and didn't get quite the push that maybe it deserved. Um, re really, really good work. And, and, you know what? I'll give Dave Franco a pass as well. I, I in fact, I'm kind of a, a bit of a Dave Franco stan at this point. So, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was really good. And I think, you know, check it out if you haven't done so far. That's if Beale Street could talk. What else have you got, Paul? Uh, so next up, I've got a film that I think we, we talked about on Coming Attractions that we we're both quite keen on seeing. And then it didn't appear anywhere. And I think it's just landed on Blu-ray. So thank you, Bar Film Festival, for putting on a big screen for us. Uh, this is a Swedish sci-fi, I believe, uh, called Anyara. Um, which initially I think came out in 2018, although hit our shores um, earlier this year. Uh, this is directed by Pella Kargerman and Hugo Lider uh, and stars um, Emily Johnson. Um, I've said pronounced that very Britishly, but that does, appears to be what the name looks like. So, uh, yeah, so the premise of this sci-fi is that you have a, a large, a very large commercial spaceship taking uh, a number of settlers to Mars. The journey is supposed to take three weeks. Um, and I'm, in terms of spaceship, I'm talking sort of massive like futuristic cruise liner size of spaceship so you've got hundreds of restaurants the kind of a, sit a city in space essentially are taking these people to their destination um something goes wrong um an accident happens with the engines the ship has to jettison in their fuel uh, and they are adrift in space with potentially no way home um and the film basically focuses on what would happen to this group of people um if cuts are completely cut off from earth essentially um i really 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 like this film i have to say i thought there was there was some really with really, i'm not going to spoil what happens but i think there's some really 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 interesting elements here i think they do in terms of special effects wise i think they do a lot with a limited budget and i think that the film for the most part considering obviously it won't have the same budget as as some bigger budget sort of american contemporaries would have done i think they do really really good work with it um there's some there's some very very cool stuff with what what's called a mima machine which kind of is some kind of i think some kind of life form but it's never really fully fleshed out which i quite like there's a lot of elements here that they don't there's some some elements here that i wanted more from and other elements i like the mystery behind them so this is kind of what works that kind of worked and didn't for me in places so this whole thing is, it seems to be some kind of life form the machine that projects people's memories, but then they overwork it. And yeah, there's some cool stuff going on here. And again, I'm, I'm in danger of saying too much here with, with, with spoiling it. But no, if, if you get a chance to see it, I think it's it's yeah, it's one of the it's one of the um, cleverest, enjoyable sci-fi's I've seen for a while. I really really had a lot of time for this. Yeah, and it will pivot on what you said at the end there, Paul. You know, if you get a chance to see it, because it feels like one of those films that might be a little bit tricky to it's find at least out initially. on Blu-ray now. I think Arrow have released it. Oh, okay. Um, so I think it is it is you should the mission should be able to rent it from somewhere like Amazon or somewhere like that. But it was just okay. it was just nice to give, be given the opportunity to see it on the big screen. To be honest, so yeah, absolutely. That's uh, Anyara. Next from me, then we're going at a pace here, Paul. I think we're doing 
doing like two to, to three minutes per review. I like it. Uh, next, I've got <laughs> Late Night, this one directed by Nisha Ganatra and starring Emma Thompson as a kind of Ron Burgundy-esque figure. And I say that only because she is a uh, anchor, or in this case, a talk show host, who is under threat as a sort of dinosaur who's going to be um, put out to pasture in favour of the new edgier, uh, quote-unquote, up-and-coming comedy star played by Ike Barinholtz, who is going to take over her show and bring it new viewership and younger eyes and all that kind of stuff. Emma Thompson's really, really good. This movie is like uh, the filmic equivalent of sitting in a hot bath, a warm bath, I should say, not uncomfortably hot. <laughs> it's very inoffensive. It doesn't really take any risks. You know what's going to happen throughout. But of that kind of a film, it's a sort of superior example. Um, you've also got here Mindy Calling as the new recruit who's the first female in the writing room for this particular talk show. Um, you've got John Lithgow playing Emma Thompson's husband who's sort of ailing, older, um, unwell and at home at the time where she's going through this tricky period in her later career. Uh, support from Dennis O'Hare, uh, Hugh Dancy, Seth Myers and Bill Mayer uh, show up as well to give it a bit of real world talk show clout. Um, I, I really enjoyed this. And like I read a lot of reviews sort of saying, you know, it's dull or uh, uninventive. And it kind of is to a certain degree. But Emma Thompson's so good. And this movie's sort of so charming that I'll forgive it a lot. So, yeah, I, I quite enjoyed it. That one's Late Night also from 2019. Okay. Any more, Paul? No, I might check that out then. Yeah, no, sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, so this is uh, another one that's shown at Bath Film Festival, although it is also run on a movie if anyone wants to see this as is a dog called money by the way the pj harvey documentary i don't know if i mentioned that uh this is the souvenir from joanna hogg the latest from joanna hogg this is my first experience with a joanna hogg film i'll, I'll be 100 honest and i think this is, was this was quite anticipated by both of us um i'm gonna be a little bit lazy here and use uh use the imdb um synopsis here which is a young film student in the early 80s becomes romantically involved with a complicated and untrustworthy man um now in from the way i read this film and perhaps why i didn't get on with this film quite as well as I thought in my this is how I think the synopsis should read a young film student in the early 1980s inexplicably becomes romantically involved with a complete aloof asshole um now the performances are very very good um Tilda Swinton Byrne which is um no sorry Honest Swinton Byrne Tilda Swinton's daughter plays the young film student and then you've got a guy called Tom Burke who's an actor I recognize from somewhere plays the the enigmatic or and mysterious Anthony who for my money is so aloof and so up his own ass that I just couldn't spend I just don't understand why any character would any want to spend any time with this man and this for me is why I couldn't really engage with the film like it's it's well made I like some like I've read I've read things saying it's clumsily shot and it doesn't work I think I think it does work I think I like the way it's shot I like the acting the writing's not too bad it's just well the writing's well good I guess it's just I just couldn't relate to this character he's such such an overbearing asshole that I don't understand why anyone would want to spend any time with him. And as a result, I just found myself frustrated with the whole film. And it's it's difficult to see whether I should be judging a film on that or not. Maybe he's supposed to be that overbearing. I don't know. But for me, I didn't buy that there's n there's any love between these characters at all. So, And that is the crux of why this film should work. And this, for me, is why it didn't. Because I didn't buy that anyone could love this man. Um, and there's more to it than that without spoiling it as to as to what happens. But 
This is yeah. the moment if we're a really savvy podcast in the modern age where we say, hey guys, get in touch. Are there any films that you don't like because a particular character got under your skin? Contact us on social media. <laughs> but of course, we don't do that kind of thing. So uh, you, you can do that if you want to, but decide for yourself. <laughs> I know what you're saying there, man. It can totally happen where you can be into most elements of a particular production and then one element, like in this case, a character is enough to really throw you off or, or, or disillusion you a little bit with what's going on on screen. So yeah, I can see where you're coming from. And yeah, I'll absolutely have to check it out because like you said, it's on movie and I haven't got to it yet, even though I pay for that service. So got to do it. Uh, one that probably didn't need to get to, but I'm a bit of a completist. I finally got round to uh, the <laughs> Eli Roth uh, co-written, co-starring uh, movie directed by Nicholas Lopez. This is Aftershock, released in the UK in 2013. I think they shot in 2012. Uh, it's, I, I guess, the movie where Eli Roth uh, set his sights on young Chilean American actress Lorenzo Rizzo, who went on to be his wife and uh, unfortunately, for whatever reason, no longer his wife. Um, yeah, you've seen this one already, haven't you, Paul? I have, yeah. I, I, had, quite, I had quite a lot of fun with this film, I have to say, from, from memory. It's been a while since I've seen it, to be fair. but It's it's very Eli Roth, is what I'll say about it. Um, it's very Eli Roth, because what Eli Roth does, if anybody's been paying attention, is he pads out the beginning of his films with a lot of sort of inconsequential fluff. In this case, it's these uh, folks going travelling, they're in Chile, they go to a nightclub, then they go out of the nightclub and they do some other stuff, then they go back to the nightclubs. They have two full, long <laughs> nightclub scenes. Nothing happens in the movie first other than people just having a nice time on holiday and the production crew having a lovely old time on holiday until probably 40 minutes into this film, I would say. 35, 40 minutes before things, you know, go go wrong and the cracks start to appear, literally, Paul, in the floor because there is an earthquake. And after the earth earthquake, you, you better believe it, there are aftershocks. Now, the funny thing with this movie is in Eli Roth's version of um, what I guess was based on the actual Chilean earthquake of 2010 um, in quite poor taste if you were to buy into that being an idea given that you shoot just after the wake of that disaster it seems like a fair enough uh, shot to take at the guy but uh, in Eli Roth's brain, what happens when there's an earthquake in a South American country is just everybody there uh, who is a, a, a ne'er-do-well, which seems to be most people, including prisoners, which is anybody who has tattoos, just starts <laughs> killing and raping everybody in sight. So um, that's a, a hazard of South America that I wasn't aware of. Uh, yeah, that plays out here. I mean, what I do like is stuff I like about Eli Roth's stuff in the past, which is he's quite good at doing unexpected, sudden, really shocking moments incidents yeah for sure things yeah. that happen from nowhere and are you know fairly visceral and gory and, and nasty but you know in a way that's entertaining if you like that sort of thing which i often do if i'm honest uh yeah it's a bit rickety it looks cheap a lot of the earthquake stuff is very clearly just shaking a handheld camera um <laughs> and so that doesn't play so well with you know a few years since this thing was released but it's not all bad it just takes an awfully long time to get going and then there's there's a bit of ickiness in it that I don't necessarily think needed to be in there, but it, you know, it gave birth to this lovely relationship that lasted at least four years. So uh, good luck to them all. Uh, I won't be watching it again. Paul, have you got anything else? <laughs> uh, no, that's me done for this week. So we did well there. We've, yeah. popped, we've popped those reviews out. You, you hold up though, sir. You hold up because you know that there's one more to come from me. And the only reason there's one more to come is because you have somehow managed not to have to see this movie. So we can't feature it today. I mean, there was there was some fairly, you know, almost 
It was all, almost some strongly worded WhatsApp messages going on between <laughs> us this morning when you realised I hadn't gone to see it. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and mostly fueled by the fact that I had to fucking sit through this thing. But um, yeah, I, I've written in my notes here uh, the movie could be called Fifty Shades of Yeehaw, but um, this one is Midway. Uh, we previewed this one last week. It's come out obviously uh, the previous weekend. Uh, Midway from director Roland Emmerich. Uh, this one, I see I've got my notes in a completely different order now, Paul, because this was going to be a feature for me. But this one <laughs> uh, tells the story of um, the Battle of Midway in the Midway Islands in the Pacific Ocean in 1941, two years into the Second World War, just after the events of Pearl Harbor. But of course, because that's the period we're in, Emmerich can't resist but do his own reenacted version of Pearl Harbor. Um, it could be called, uh, I don't know, green screen harbour that section because wow some of the green screen work is <laughs> super bad uh later on in the movie we've got yeah the actual battle of midway itself and lots of sequences of pilots dive bombing it's got a real um sort of top gun feel about it and that's why i make the joke about yeehaw i mean yes it's what we expected but there is still something that's like do, do people not read these scripts back to themselves and think maybe this sounds a little bit too right on in terms of yeah. American imperialism? Because, you know, you've got here the Japanese characters sort of looking into the middle distance because, of course, the Japanese are the ones on the aircraft carriers who've been bombed to pieces by the Americans and, and saying things like... Um, they are such brave soldiers, lucky that their planes are so bad, or something. So even when they criticise the Americans in terms of having shonky machinery, they're, they're actually complimenting they're complimenting them for being so valiant and excellent. And yeah, at the centre of all this stuff, uh, you've got Ed Screen, who is not, a, in my opinion, not a strong enough figure to, to anchor a film. Um, no, here, absolutely he just, not. He does lots of sort of snarling, and he's the you know he's the guy who doesn't play by the rules. Like in the, at the beginning of the film, he's got to land with a co-pilot or a gunner in the back of his uh, plane. He's got to land on the surface of the aircraft carrier. But instead of just doing that like a normal person with an expensive plane in his uh, in his uh, ownership, he decides that he's going to cut the engine. And he's going to sort of bank the plane in a way that will simulate what could happen if they'd been shot or in a bad condition in a conflict situation. So that the guy right. in the back's like <laughs> shitting himself. And then obviously he pulls it off perfectly. And everybody on deck's like, oh, I know he's going to hit that first wire. And then he comes in perfectly brilliant landing round of applause. And you know that towards the end of the movie, your boy That's Wes Took, yeah. Wes Took, who apparently wrote this thing and hasn't written any other feature films, would you believe it? Uh, he, he, you know that he's going to bring that sequence back again it's just very sort of thudding and predictable the movie mm. and like i say it is not or i may have said it's not all bad there are um aerobatic scenes in here that are pretty well shot they've got to fit an awful lot of action on screen they fill the screen with this action and at times you forget that you're watching such a second-rate filmmaker make such a second-rate film but ultimately that is what it is and um you know no amount of i don't know military 
military general played by Woody Harrelson is going to convince me otherwise. <laughs> so, uh, oh yeah, sorry. And I've got to add on in this whole thing, Patrick Wilson sort of squints his way through the movie. And he's the guy who has a hunch that the attack or the conflict is actually going to be centered at Midway rather than elsewhere um, against the ju- the better judgment of the American sort of uh, top brass. And so he's got this sort of weird role where he just sort of stands in room saying, ah, I don't think it's going to go that way. I think it's going to go this way because intelligence. And um, ultimately, of course, you know that's going to play out in that way as well. Yeah, um, it's not going to surprise you, Paul. It's probably not going to dazzle you too much. If you're a real fan of the Ed Screens and Patrick Wilsons of the world or scenes of dive bombing uh, fighter planes, then, you know, get on board. Or if you feel guilty that Pete's seen it and I haven't, then, you know, go in my place. Uh, That's fine. Uh, But (laughs) I think this is going to do another run next week pete i might i might go just to just to try and make up for it (laughs) yeah yeah do your civic duty get yourself there midway um but other than that yeah we're doing our top five flight movies and this wouldn't get on either one of our lists even if you had seen it so um we 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 can move on from that yeah be excited we can move on from this entire section in fact and we'll be back in just a moment with the section that we call coming attractions where we preview films coming out this week right after this So yeah, this is my favourite part of the show as I run this gag every week. I'm not going to stop now where Pete puts all the effort in and I just have to respond to whether I'm excited about films or not. Um, So yeah, Pete, what have we got? Well, uh, one of them we don't really need to go over too much because you've already mentioned it and you've already seen it. That's Little Monsters releasing generally this week. uh, As you said, you've basically covered it. Lupita Nyong'o, all the stuff you said before, refer back to the earlier (laughs) mini review and popcorn movies. That's Little Monsters. I like Lupita Nyong'o and your review sounded relatively positive, so I'll probably get along to that one we've also got um, Amelia Clark uh, looking lovely in a film called Last Christmas that looks entirely galling and grating uh, it's a comedy drama romance Paul and it's coming out just before Christmas and it might run right up until the Christmas period would you believe it uh, this one also um, is got a writing credit for Emma Thompson that I said I liked in um, Late Night so I shouldn't be too horrible about it sitting on 51 meta score at the moment any chance Paul that you or maybe your wife will have the impetus to go along and see uh, last Christmas. I'm pretty sure I've already been I've already been tasked with booking tickets. So uh, yeah, <laughs> I imagine by this time next week I would have seen this. Um, I don't know, man. Like Amelia Clark is it's clearly beautiful. She's also a very charming performer. So I think if it wasn't for her yeah. in this, I probably wouldn't be so keen. Um, but yeah. she might carry this over and above. And there apparently is is a, t- a clever twist in here somewhere as well. Um, so I'm yeah. I don't. Know. I think this might be better than we give it maybe i'm giving it well how it looks might be better than it looks to me at the moment anyway and amelia clark is charming so i'm sure there's that at least yeah but both of the leads look very charming and um so you can probably forgive them quite a lot and yeah like you've said man like every time you see amelia clark not only on screen but also in interviews she just seems seems lovely yeah. and i know also she's an actress who's who's coped with an also an awful lot in terms of her her own yeah. um, medical history so yeah uh, you know we're, maybe we're being generous but it very nearly is the season for it paul so maybe we'll get along to last christmas uh we've also got le mans 66 you've seen this one as well i think ford v ferrari was the original yeah this title. was a, a limitless uh, secret screen in uh, odeon so yeah well, well we'll talk about this one next week i guess but yeah um yeah i th- 
yeah, I thought it was, I, I enjoyed it. I had a good time with it. I won't say any more than that. I'll save it for next week's show. But yeah, I had a good time with this. But this is, just to mention, this is the Christian Bale um, performance that I've seen, yeah, it's so far only in trailer form. So yeah. Yeah, sorry. So this is so this is Christian Bale and Matt Damon. Matt Damon plays um, Shelby, the guy that made the, the AC Cobra car and worked with Ford to make the GT40. Uh, Christian Bale plays a, a racing driver that basically uh, wins, well, does he win Le Mans or does he not win Le Mans for Ford as they go up against Ferrari, who win every 24-hour race uh, ever and basically tells the kind of the true story about the, the rivalry between the two companies? Mm. Um, last of all, then, for this week, we've got the report. This one, the latest to feature Adam Driver in a lead role uh, alongside John Hamm and Annette Benning from writer-director Scott Z. Burns, who I know has been a collaborator and writer with um, Steven Soderbergh on a number of different projects, including like uh contagion and uh, elsewhere so um yes the uh synopsis that i've got in front of me idealistic senate staffer daniel j jones that will be adam driver tasked by his boss to lead an investigation into the cia's post 9 11 detention interrogation program uncovers shocking secrets so um yeah pretty um politically charged stuff from scotty burns i would imagine here and an actor that we both like quite a bit in in adam driver right paul yeah i'm, I'm i want to see this uh i'm probably will try and get to it this week to be fair i think it would be i don't know if it would be incredible but i think it would be solid um and yes definitely on my on my watch list yes and there's someone in it also called evander duck so um that's convinced me even further <laughs> but but yeah um <laughs> I, i'm a new fan a convert Good. of the duck uh, annette benning also made me cry not that long ago in that uh film stars don't die in liverpool movie film so stars don't die in liverpool, um, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah into it it's a drama thriller and uh, looks decent and it's holding i think a 76 on metacritic at the moment there's no, 70 sorry but yeah above average in terms of uh critical opinion thus far that rounds up then this section of coming attraction so we will be back in just a moment with today's feature review, which is The Aeronauts, right after this. So yeah, our review this week is The Aeronauts, as Pete mentioned. Uh, this is directed by Tom Harper, not Tom Hooper, when I got all in a tiz about this last week. Tom Harper, I believe, has worked on... Peaky Blinders, um, amongst other things. Pete, do you know any more about Tom Harper than I've just let on? Wild Rose, which you've yes, seen. Wild Rose as well. That makes sense now. Yeah, Wild Rose, which I was mo- again mostly mostly positive on, to be fair, although slightly cliched in places. So, yeah, fairly new talent in terms of feature film directing, um, and it also features um, who have we got? We've got Felicity Jones here, and my favourite actor of all time, Eddie Redmayne. Uh, Pete, before I start talking about how much I hate Eddie Eddie Redmayne, I can't even say his name. I'm so angry with him uh before i talk about eddie redmayne uh set, set up the premise of this film for us yes so we have uh, here pilot amelia wren played by aforementioned felicity jones and scientist james glacier played by eddie redmayne uh, who find themselves in an epic fight for survival while attempting to make discoveries in a gas balloon high above the safety of the ground below they are pioneers the year is 18 52 i want to say with very little confidence um <laughs> And uh, they, yes, what basically Glacier's goal is, is to go up in this uh, gas-fueled balloon and to take meteorological measurements in order to learn things about the Earth's atmosphere that haven't been recorded with the accuracy or detail that he desires and probably the scientific... Talking about accuracy and detail, Peter, it was actually set in 1862. Oh, way off. 
<laughs> my my my, uh, my history is is not my strong suit. Um, Sorry. Anyway. Yes, and uh, yeah. So he wants to give this information to the scientific community as sort of his legacy um, that he has taken on from his father before him, who spent his time looking up to the heavens and, and dreaming. Tom Courtney plays his father, I should say, uh, dreaming of uh, all the things yet undiscovered. Before we get into our views on the aeronauts, here's a little clip. Are you ready? Yes, I just need to retake my ground readings. Do one final check of the equipment. Well, my equipment? Well, it's all prepared in advance. Now, don't touch this rope, Mr. Dosha, as it will let out the gas. I don't know how a balloon works. Oh, what are you doing? We fly! The sky awaits. So yeah, uh, where, where do we where do we start on this one? I think the the premise is quite exciting to me, to be honest. Like I, I don't I can't recall the last hot air balloon film I've seen. Possibly the the Jackie Chan's Around the World in Eighty Days effort. I think is the last, possibly the last one I can recall. So it's always intriguing to see um, a, the hot air balloon drama. I'll give it that much. And I think from the trailers, I think that to me, like it looked like the set pieces, the set pieces would be great. Pete, where do you want to? Do you want to lead in well, I was, further from that? I was just going to add. Do we to, start on Eddie Redmayne? Or? <laughs> I was going to add to what you said. The last time that I saw a sort of drama in a hot air balloon, it would have been in the later sections of the video game Red Dead Redemption Two, which has a lovely little uh, okay. hot air balloon section in it. But um, yeah, that that sort of uh, jogged my memory as to the the sort of thrill of a hot air balloon flight. In fact, I've actually been in a hot air balloon, Paul, before, um, and so that those memories as a sort of 11, 12 year old or whatever came flooding back when I watched. The as well and uh, not to mention managed to see it in the IMAX on my end so I got a real feel in terms of you know sense of uh, scope and uh, height which is something that freaks me out at the best of times so yeah I was really on board with this albeit with the caveat that although I don't have the same levels of vitriol towards Eddie Redmayne that you do I'm certainly not his biggest fan I find him to be an actor who tries a little bit or a lot too hard, uh, quite often, in my opinion. But <laughs> All more, the time. More, yeah. more on that later. Yeah. All the time. What, what I would yeah. say sets this film up quite nicely is that we have this pretty zippy uh, opening few minutes in which you've got the build-up to and take-off for this big flight. So the film doesn't waste any time getting the two characters off the ground. It does, and maybe more on this later, spend an awful lot of its running time then flashing back to events on the ground and events that went before. But what we do at the beginning of the film is we get in into the uh, hot air balloon with the two leads. We have a small sequence, short sequence with uh, Himesh Patel's character, who is a collaborator of uh, Redmayne's Glacier character, who's been working with him on some of his readings and tests in the past. They uh, say goodbye to one another. Uh, then Felicity Jones enters as Amelia Wren. This uh, sort of initially late um, and rather disorganised sort of a whirlwind of a girl who also seems to have a brilliance with flight that few others can match and a fearlessness with flight that's otherwise maybe unmatched, albeit she has this history because her former partner passed away in a flying accident that at the start of the movie we don't know much about and later we is revealed what what actually happened there so i would compliment the movie on the efficiency of its opening and the fact that it doesn't waste loads of time on the ground before we actually get the spectacle of being in the air yeah i would i, I would second that to be fair and i think once this once the movie does get into the air this is definitely where, where its strengths are i think the set pieces and i can only imagine seeing these in imax i was considering this w wouldn't have been had this 
this wouldn't have had like a vast budget to it. I think that the filmmakers have done an incredible job of, of making this stuff in the air look absolutely fantastic, to be honest. And I think the, the set pieces were, were genuinely exciting. The balloon looked incredible and the shots over London looked great. So I couldn't, yeah, I said I'm a little bit jealous you've seen this in IMAX, to be fair. And I think and I think when the film is in the air, I think it's it's thoroughly entertaining. Um, and like this, and I think Felicity Felicity Jones is, is great here. I'm, I'm, she's an actor I enjoy a lot more than Eddie Redmayne's performance. Um, and I think, yeah, Felicity Jones is great. I like the fact it's focused on she's kind of the heroic character more so than the Eddie Redmayne character. I like those elements. But I think I think I get the impression you're going to come around to the same point as me. I mostly like this film when it was in the air. Yeah, yeah, it's it's actually where I started when I was writing about this. That that this film doesn't know when to put its best foot forward, in my opinion, because as you've said quite rightly, Paul, the flight sequences are largely excellent and give you this real sense of the peril and wonder of the situation. Right? Mm. It's not all white knuckle fear. A lot of it is this sort of reverie and uh, and wonder for the natural world and the clouds and the peace and the quiet and these things really appeal to me and and I really enjoyed those parts and and like you said you know spread that across an IMAX screen in particular and it's it's a real really enjoyable experience but on the other hand the sections that are on the ground are perfunctory at best plodding almost, at worst almost terminally dull yeah it's, it's <laughs> like they had to put them there or they felt they had to put them there but they've not done anything to inject them with any sense of sort of forward motion and and you've got good actors on the ground I mean you've got a Tom Courtney that I mentioned you've got Rebecca Front who's like a, a bit of a uh, mm. you know legend of British comedy at this point uh, on the ground in a, in a serious dramatic role obviously here but it, it doesn't add a lot at all and the problem is that every time you get into a section of yeah like awe and wonder and being sort of spellbound by what's going on in the sky we cut back to the ground and you're taken out of that and you're taken out of that and and as much as I credited the film with having a sort of zippy efficient opening I would have accepted a slightly longer opening sequence if we could have just then stayed with them just stayed on the balloon yeah, for longer. Yeah I, I completely agree because as the film sort of builds any momentum it is sapped by these flashbacks and as I said I'm not they're not even like a little bit dull for me I was I was fighting sleep every time like within about five minutes these flashbacks starting I was fighting sleep and it was almost just like I needed like a 4DX gust of wind to the face to say oh we're back in the air now we're back in the hot air balloon because I really really struggled with these with the, the flashback sequences just so little happens and so little of consequence happens in these things I just I don't know why they're there yeah <laughs> I yeah just... I mean we we have the obligatory uh, meeting between the two leads right we had to have that at some point yeah although it almost feels like once you get to the end of the film and you feel so robbed of a lot of the best moments because of the flashbacks you almost think like well you could have just showed me more rather than telling me so much like couldn't we have had more dialogue between the two on the balloon which then filled mm. in some more of the gaps about their history rather than having to feel yeah, obligated to show all of the events of oh you know he wanted to go up in a balloon but he needed a pilot but she was reluctant and then she needed persuading and then he did some persuading and like all of this is just playing out in a kind of you know abc sort of basic tv drama kind of way on the ground and and that's a shame because like we've been saying you know that's that's robbing you of something that you very rarely see which is a movie that's just based in the sky and it's you know very good at being based in the sky and very good at its own Yes, set of, of of special skills when it comes to shooting that kind of material. So, yeah, a, a real pity on that front. I mean, let's not hold back, Paul. Get, tell me something about the Eddie Ray, the Redmayne performance in this movie. <laughs> 
I mean, it's it's widely known that I'm not I'm not a big fan of his acting style, and I, I mostly agree with what you've said, Pete. He just feels like he's trying too hard all the time. And I think you said to me, I think you said to me when you've seen it, something like this is definitely the the eddiest of Redmayne performances I think we've seen in quite some time. Oh boy! Um, just the, the the weird facial expressions, just the just almost seemingly overacting at every possible opportunity, and the fact that Felicity Jones' character, when I mean, it won't be a spoiler to show at some point in a high air balloon movie that has some excitement in it, they will need to jettison some weight. I think Felicity Jones' character does a bloody good job of not just throwing Ed, Reddy, Ed, Eddie Red, Reddy Edmain. I'm so angry. Eddie Redmayne just straight overboard, to be honest, because if there's, like... It's, it's just, I just don't understand why he's so, so well-revered as an actor, because it's just constant overacting all the time. I think, um, I think to the, answer that probably rhetorical question, I think that there's a sort of sensitivity and um, well-spokenness and clarity about the actor Eddie Redmayne that is appealing to screenwriters mm. and directors. And he may be a lovely man. Um, I, I don't I hope he is. I'm I don't sure, doubt I'm that. Sure, I'm sure he is. But, but yeah, I mean, without spoiling anything about the movie, there's a, there's a sequence later on, Paul, that you'll remember, where um, Redmayne needs to get up. Uh, that's what he needs to do. And um, in getting up, he's having a bit of difficulty for reasons that I won't say now. And uh, then Felicity Jones' character says, well, what if I helped you up? And he delivers the line that's like, well, then I would stand. And it's like, come on, man. Just just read it like a human being. Like, not every line needs to be read like your whisper crying. And that's what <laughs> that's what so much of this is and and yeah i mean we've spent the first part of this review saying oh isn't it great when we get up in the air with these two and we've got all this beautiful scenery around us but the problem with being up in the air with just two characters is that you're up in the air with just two characters and one of those characters is played by eddie redmayne here who is really quite hard to be around for me like like you were saying if he'd have had an unfortunate accident and fallen over the edge then you know i fully believe felicity jones could carry this on her own and uh and that would have been quite good or maybe they could have kept the dog in the basket the cute dog at the beginning of the film that would have been entertaining i would have been there for that so um yeah it would have gone into a sort of up scenario where where felicity jones travels on her own i should say within all this having read a bit of trivia on the movie uh the glacier character is based on a real meteorologist who did exist so i'm not wishing death on a real man from history just just maybe on the uh, fictional representation of that man played by Eddie Redmayne <laughs> in, in this case uh, because this was hard uh, this was this was really hard what's the the gender transition one that he's in uh, the Danish girl. I haven't seen that. The, the, the Danish girl. Yeah. I mean, well, that's a treat in store for you, Paul, because th there are good things about the Danish girl. But again, I don't believe the Redmayne performance is necessarily one of those. Although I know he did garner a lot of plaudits for that performance. So, yeah, maybe I'm coming over to the, the vitriolic side with you uh, about this guy. <laughs> maybe I'm going to be equally uh, angry the next time I see his name on a on a project. I just kind of wish he'd do something else that wasn't just the softly spoken. I'm about to cry. Yeah. It's almost like it's just Eddie. I mean, he's supposed to be very good in theory of everything, playing Stephen Hawking. I haven't seen it. I just for me, if he's going to overact anywhere, it will be there. Mm. Um, so I'll be. I, I will probably catch up with that film at some point. I just don't get. I just don't get the love for for him over and above 
a lot of other younger and, in my opinion, more talented actors. I wish him no ill will. I'm sure he's a lovely man, uh, but I don't particularly enjoy him on screen. <laughs> yeah, we need him playing, what, a, a neo-Nazi or something. We just, yeah. <laughs> we just need him thrown out of his comfort zone into something totally different. But yeah, anyway, this is not a review of Eddie Redmayne. This is a review of the Aeronauts. Uh, yeah, so uh, bullet points, basically. The stuff in the sky mostly looks great. As you said, quite rightly, the balloon stuff, the historical detail, lovely here. Uh, yeah, mm. so, some of the shots, pretty jaw dropping. Um, that action, great. We wanted more of it. What we got was a lot of flashbacks, too many flashbacks that weren't particularly good or compelling. Is there anything else to add to this review, Paul? Uh, no, not really. To be honest, I, I don't think I don't think I had much to it. I I enjoyed it more than I thought it would, and that's down basically down to the strengths of the set pieces and the some of the camera work on the balloon scenes. It is a film that looks remarkable for how much I, I can only imagine it costs to make. Yeah. So yeah, there's stuff to dislike and but a lot but stuff to like as well. And so. yeah, like you've said, the set pieces, one in particular uh, involving Felicity Jones' uh, character, Amelia Wren, who uh, is tasked with fixing a problem with the balloon, yeah, uh, without brilliant. saying more, Absolutely is brilliant. just yeah. great. Like, it stands out yeah. as a scene that I'll remember, you know, for a good couple of years in a film that I won't necessarily remember, you know, beyond the end of this year. Perhaps. I think you've, yeah, I think you've hit the, you've hit the nail on the head there. Bits of this are, it's such a shame to have such memorable scenes in, like, combined with an otherwise forgettable film. So, yeah, it's a very mixed bag, but... Stuff to like, stuff to dislike. Well, uh, stuff to like, stuff to dislike, a mixed bag could be descriptions of some of our top fives. We've got another one coming up uh, after a little break, and that will be Top Flight top flight top top five i've i've done the the ready ed main thing that you're doing yeah uh, <laughs> top five films about flying right after this There we go. Or you could have, uh, you know, you could have just said top five flight films. That might have made it easier for you, Pete. Um, but hey ho, here we are, uh, where we're going to tap down our top five favorite favorite. I'm doing it now as well. Top five favorite films about flight. There's too many F's in this show, Pete. I'll be honest. Too many F's. Um, so at number five, um, I'm I'm so happy I can put this on a top five of something, um, and I might try and squeeze this into another top five at some point. This is the film, Pete Con Air from 1997, uh, starring Nicolas Cage uh, as Cameron Poe, who is uh, convicted of manslaughter, gets out of jail um, on early release, and is stuck on a plane with some of America's most hardened criminals and badasses, uh, played by, among others, uh, John Malkovich, Bing Rames, Danny Trejo. Um, yeah, if you haven't seen Con Air, then you have to see Con Air. It's absolutely one of my favourite films. I just, if I'm ever feeling down or ever feeling a little bit miserable, it's kind of up there with Transformers the movie for me, just to put on an absolute load of nonsense that I have a great time with. Con Air for me is that film. Uh, is is it strictly a film about flight? Maybe, maybe not. There is, I mean, it's a lot of Con it's Air. on a flight. Uh, isn't it exactly and it is yeah a lot of a lot of the action does take place does happen on a flight and there's more than one plane in it so i think it's i think it's good to sit there i just i really genuinely unironically i love con air i think it's a brilliant brilliant action film that is just so 1990s and so silly it's impossible not to have fun with uh con air is my number five uh favorite film about flight (laughs) 
Nice. Yeah. I guess we should have laid out the beginning. This isn't the easiest top five to nail down exactly what we no. wanted to put on it, whether no. it's flight films or films about flying, depending on who you talk to. Um, so, yeah, yeah first off, there, for me, there is a, an issue I want to address, which is the Studio Ghibli issue. Uh, I've left Porco Rosso off the list, although it came close. And there is another Studio Ghibli film that I'm sure you're well aware of, Paul, that I haven't yet seen, which may well have made the list if I had seen it. But you've just given us something that you said and described as sort of really fun and you've got to see it if you haven't seen it and it's you know a knock around business so i'm going to go completely the other way and say this is a <laughs> film that is not fun at all uh it's a film called charlie victor romeo from 2013 and it's sort of a uh, documentary reenactment film uh that runs just an hour and 20 minutes but the reason i've included it on this list do you know what this is I think I've t- no, I've never heard. I've never heard of this. Or I, seen I this, thought so, I'd mentioned um, it to you, but years ago. Um, this one is. I think it originated as a stage play, and a group of actors sit in what is supposed to stand for the cockpit of a plane. And then throughout its runtime, they in the film, it looks like a cockpit. I should be clear. They're not just sat on a stage. Um, And then what they use is the real black box recorder information, in-flight information from um, real flights that have ended in disaster. And they recreate what happened in the cockpit as a way of working through the events of the day. Um, this has then been taken on, I believe, by the Pentagon in a sort of training capacity, uh, the, at least the original play, um, as a way of um, working with and preparing pilots for possible crisis situations in the cockpit. So all of this sounds rather depressing and, and so on. But I, I've had a period in life where I think I got fairly fixated on, you know, um, air crash disaster, air crash investigation and five minutes from yeah. disaster and yeah. all those kinds of things. And so I know an awful lot about an awful lot of air disasters and maybe that's not for the better. But I think what the film does is an awful lot of effective emotional stuff with so little because all you've got is the the basic idea of a cockpit and some actors representing flight crew, pilot, co-pilot and so on. And some of the sequences, as I guess wouldn't be too surprising, are like really effective and really chilling and, and quite upsetting. Um, it doesn't sound like a, a glowing recommendation for this film, but it genuinely is an interesting uh, piece of work if you are into aviation documentaries or, you know, the investigation of things that went wrong. That one's Charlie Victor Romeo from 2013. What have you got number four, Paul? Uh, you might have heard of this film, Pete. I, I don't know. Uh, Top Gun uh, from 1986, directed by Tony Scott. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll put my cards on the table with Top Gun. Well, sometimes I watch it and I hate it, and other times I watch it and I really, really enjoy it. I, just, I don't know. I still don't know there's there's elements of this film that i really don't like don't like the maverick character he's a, he's, a, he's an asshole tom cruise is is as, as effective as playing an arrogant man in this uh, maverick uh he works on that basis but again can be irritating there's some very very silly moments in this the sex scene is is downright appalling um and yeah it's a it's a mixed bag for me and i know it's i know there's a lot of love for it however the reason it's on this list is because the actual flight scenes are nothing short of incredible in top gun and i don't think have been better oh you haven't seen midway um, mate you since, haven't seen midway like, no that's true yeah i haven't seen midway but yeah i mean they they shot actual footage of actual fighter jets with actual people flying them so um this is way before the days of cgo back in 1986 uh the soundtrack's ridiculously over the top and thoroughly enjoyable um and the film is in fairness endless endlessly quotable so yeah i i don't yeah i 
I enjoy it, but don't necessarily love it, shall we say. But the fighter plane scenes are are fantastic. Um, and for that basis alone, I'm intrigued to see what they do with the sequel, actually, which is out next year, I think, um, and directed by the guy that bought us Oblivion. So I imagine it will look beautiful and the story will be shite, but that's pretty much the sums up Top Gun, to be honest. So, uh, yeah, Top Gun is my number four. Nice. Um, yeah, it could well have made my list and, and didn't for whatever reason, just because I'm contrarian and put other stuff on. But um, I, I'm going to stick in the year 2013, at least in terms of UK release dates uh, for my number four, which is Flight from uh, director Robert Zemeckis, starring Denzel Washington as the absolute gravitational centre of this thing. Um, this movie, to me, is massively underseen and underrated. Um, have you seen it, Flight? I liked it. I think it very nearly made my list, actually. Right. If it wasn't for the one that's coming up next, it would have made my list. Um, right. So, yeah, I... I I'm with you. It was good. So, yeah, the, the, the basic setup is at the beginning of the movie, there is a uh, malfunction on an airliner and the pilot of that airliner, played by Denzel, manages to save the flight from almost inevitable disaster by performing a manoeuvre that is a maverick to link with your number four. <laughs> um, then there's an investigation into what happened, as there is, as there was in you know the previous documentary film, and there's always an investigation when something goes wrong on a flight. And it turns out that some Something about this pilot is a little bit troubling, and I won't say more than that, but the thing that's wrong with him and the way this movie wrestles with the thing that's wrong with him and also just depicts the thing that's wrong with him, it has stuck with me ever since I saw it for the first time. And yes, the flight sequences are, or the flight sequence is fairly central, and yes, this is an entire movie about a pilot, but it's also entirely a movie about a a personal issue and yeah I, I, I'm, I'm dancing around it because I think if you haven't seen it it's a bit of a hidden gem um, Flight from 2012 2013 in the UK is my number four uh, my number three is a film from 2006 um, talking very much a changing tone here there's nothing knock around about this film at all and it works all the better for it this is Paul Greengrass's United 93 yeah that's mine um, it's mine as well snap oh is it okay <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right um, which is a film, I'll be honest, I can't bring myself to watch again because it it's, was such an effective film that I it, I really, really found it quite harrowing. For those of you who don't know uh, what this film is, it's a real-time account of the events on the United, United Flight 93, which is one of the three planes hijacked on September the 11th that crashed uh, in, in Pennsylvania after passengers actually fought back against the terrorists and managed to bring the plane down before it reached its intended target. Um, yeah, and the whole, as I said, the whole film is, is shot in real-time using... Mostly, I think, unprofessional actors here. Well, there are some names I, I now recognise possibly since this. But it's just such an such an exercise in how to build tension quickly and maintain just an incredibly terse and uncomfortable atmosphere for the whole thing. Pete, do you want to add anything to that as it's on your list as well? Yeah, I mean, it's in this position um, next for, for me. So, yeah, I, I mean, just to, to sort of um, underline the, the same points that you have, really, I, I, it's kind of... It's awkward to talk about United 93 because I would say, I would argue that it's perhaps Paul Greengrass' greatest film. But then, mm. just like you, I've seen it, I'm pretty sure, I may have seen it twice, perhaps, because it showed up on TV again or I, I watched part of it again. But yeah, for the exact same reason as you, and I think a lot of people who saw this, it is a film to experience and to experience once and to uh, think on um, and to sort of... Uh, like meditate on, I guess, uh, because we know of the, you know, horrendous circumstances 
as they played out in real life. And that's, as you rightly say, Paul, that's exactly what you get here is a sort of blow by blow, realistic account of what goes on in that flight, you know, on its fated, ill-fated journey. Um, but the way in which Greengrass is able to bring his like um, verite, shaky camera approach that we've seen in the you know Bourne films that he's done, and um, and really bring it to, I think an arena where it works better than any other approach would have. If this bit, if mm. this film had been shot with a more sort of um, you know a gentler camera man, a, a stiller camera, I, I should say, then it just it just wouldn't have the impact that it has, and it has a massive impact. So yeah, it was my number three on the list, United ninety three. Yeah, which um, yeah, if you haven't seen it, check it out. But be warned, it's not an easy watch. Um, which brings me to my number two, Pete, which is quite an easy watch and very much a change in tone again. Uh, this is Airplane, Pete. Oh, we, uh, we've done it. We've done it again. This has never happened. You want, is this your number two as well? It is my number two as well okay this is this is this is, this is bizarre this is generally the first time this happened on the show we have we don't know listeners what our top fives are before we go into the show so this is this is good i'm intrigued to see what will be number one now but yeah uh so this is airplane directed by jim abrams david zucker and jerry zucker um uh, written by the same people starring uh, robert hayes leslie nielsen amongst others i mean at this point i imagine everyone who has ever watched a film may well have seen airplane but it's just an absolute joy of silliness an absolute joy of silliness. Uh, I mean, to, the, to give the synopsis, if you want it from IMDb, a man afraid to fly must ensure that plans land safely after all the pilots become sick. It's just absolute farce. Leslie Nielsen's incredible in it. Everyone's incredible in it. It's just a dose of uh, 1980s silliness that... Uh, some of the jokes haven't aged a day in fairness pete do you want to add anything to that uh, yeah it's not the only film on my list that included someone with a drinking problem um, <laughs> although in this case of a of a completely different kind yeah it's just one of those isn't it airplane where uh, i think i brought this up a couple of episodes ago i think there is certain comedy that when we were talking about chris morris uh, there's certain mm. comedy skits bits or films where no matter how low or downtrodden or tired or jaded your feeling if you throw them on they immediately sort of lift your spirits and airplane's one of those movies for me that like anytime i see that it's on tv i don't need to necessarily watch the whole film i'll just watch a part (laughs) of it and it'll cheer me up and then i'll move on with my day so yeah uh, it's just a lot of love for it it's just a a a joy of a of a movie a joy of an experience and and yeah the the hit rate on jokes in this thing is is phenomenal i mean you you watch the average uh, comedy release now that makes its way to cinemas and you're lucky if you laugh out loud you know half a dozen times whereas airplane it's just like punchline and punchline and punchline and and they hit so regularly that yeah it's a real marvel of a thing so yeah i i love it airplane number two for me uh which leaves me with my number one and this is the first probably the first time i've done a top five where i did wrote the number one first because there was no arguing about where this film sat for me uh this is philip kaufman's the right stuff from 1983 um this tells the story of um uh, of a of a team of test pilots um as they are testing sort of faster and faster aircraft um eventually coming on to be astronauts um and it's absolutely incredible Incredible. And I think I've only seen this the once and it just it absolutely blew me away. Considering when it was made, the color, the color of the set piece is absolutely superb. The cast is fantastic. You've got Sam Shepard, Scott Glenn, Ed Harris, among, among others. Um, really, really, really good cast. Um, and just the writing and the direction, you genuinely get a feel for 
what these people are risking when they are being test pilots you genuinely get a feel for what they're going through when they're testing these kind of this this cutting edge equipment and cutting edge flight and what they're potentially giving up and the just the just the whole thing the whole thing works so well i think the actors take to it incredibly well you generally believe the relationships with other halves that they're leaving behind you generally believe they're putting something on the line and the way it paints these guys to do, to be kind of technological heroes i think is entirely justified and entirely right and it's just a brilliantly made film. I don't think you've seen this, Pete, unless I'm mistaken. Have you? No, I remember you talking about it, but I, I don't believe I've I've got round to it still. Yeah, you should you should absolutely find it. It's it's three it's three hours. It's a long film, but it's three hours. You you will not regret. It's absolutely superb. So that's my number one film about flight. Is the right stuff, Pete? What's your number one? Well, can you guess? No, to be honest, Conair. I'm basically a sentimental <laughs> sap when you cut right down to my core. Uh, and number one on my list, uh, like you, I wrote straight away as number one when I was coming up with this one. It is uh, from two- 2009. Is it up? It is up, yes. Right. <laughs> uh, it's a film about flight, obviously, because it's a film about a man flying uh, with his house that's attached to a whole load of balloons so that he can visit the places that he would have visited with his wife who's passed away. At the beginning of the movie, you get this sort of pressy version of the relationship that he's had with his wife. I was just a snivelling mess, <laughs> like 15 minutes into Up or, or less, uh, because it was so effective. I mean, that that sequence at the beginning of um, what's the, the Firewatch, the, the kind of walking simulator video game yeah did a sort of similar thing but maybe without quite the emotional heft of this movie where it manages to set up the interrelationship of two people in a romantic relationship in a way that is heartbreaking and happens before the rest of the story happens so i kind of always tie those things together in my head but um yeah just up is really charming up has a real sense of making an animation that is for children but also speaks to people of all ages not just because the protagonist is an elderly man but because it's got this real uh, sense of what it means to be a human being and what it means to love someone and lose someone and the 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 memories that you have of a person sort of pushing you on or holding you back as you progress through your own life and the rest of your days so it's profound stuff this movie you know uh, for all its kind of bright colors and 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 pixar trappings it it's moving and it's profound and I've gone back to it and I really, really love it. And I don't know if it's my favorite. It probably is one of my favorite Pixar movies. I don't know if we haven't done that list yet. Maybe we will someday. But um, yeah, I, I, I loved Up. And like I said, when I came to think of this list and which movie that involves or is about flying would I put a number one? I kind of had to make it this one, um, even above the likes of Airplane, um, for what it's worth. I mean, one to five, I guess, is interchangeable at, at certain times. Yeah. But, <laughs> but yeah, I just it's just lovely. Um, and the, I think when people talk about what Pixar's able to do or what they have been able to do at their peak, the the first example that I'd hold up is this. Uh, I'd hold up is up, Paul, uh, because it, it's just such a strong piece of work. Like I say, on both a, a sort of childish, uh, childlike, innocent level, and also on a sort of deeply profound adult level as well. Um, I like it a great deal. It's my number one from 2009. It's up. So, Paul, what was your top five from five through one? Have you still got it in front of you? Uh, so, from five through to one, I do still have it in front of me. It is uh, Conair at 19. And, uh, sorry, Conair at Conair. At uh, number five, uh, Top Gun at number four, United 93 comes in at number three, Airplane comes in at number two, and The Right Stuff comes in at number one. 
Um, I've just closed the window with the name of the first film that I selected. Uh, Victor something something. And I, oh, that's so annoying because I can't remember what the name is. And it's three words that, uh, it's the documentary about what happens in the cockpit of a plane when there's a disaster. Uh, I'll put it up in the show notes, obviously. Uh, Then we've got at number four, Flight from 2012. At number three, United 93. At number two, Airplane. And at number one, Up from 2009. Uh, it, was a, it was quite a good top five in the end, I reckon, Paul. Yeah, I thought considering I, I struggled initially with it, but yeah, the fact I got Conair in there makes me makes me overjoyed. So yeah. <laughs> so anything else to add before we bow out for this week? Uh, no, I'm yeah, I'm excited to see Jojo Rabbit. So um, that will that, yeah, looking forward to that this weekend. Um, but aside from that, and a credit, I guess, if we're doing that credit to to Film Bath uh, and Bath Film Festival for putting on some awesome films again this week. So it's always nice. To, it's always nice to see. So yeah, Pete, anything from you to add before we uh, shuffle off? Yeah, number five was charlie victor romeo um but okay there we go in in addition to that yeah nothing but to say you know get in contact with the show as we always say uh through the email strangers in the cinema at gmail.com and contact us via twitter at stranger cinema those are the important details um and then in addition we've noticed um as i said on last week's show an uptake uh, or uh uh a rise in um, subscribers and listeners to the show, which we massively appreciate, and we want to see that continue. So, if you are someone who enjoys this show, please pass it on to somebody else. Please tell them about it. Subscribe to it yourself. Share it about on the socials and all that kind of stuff. Because you know these kinds of small grassroots podcasts in a world full of people with podcasts only survive because the listenership bothers to you know comment, share, and um, remain you know relatively loyal if possible. We'll do our best to make the show engaging. If you can do your best to help us, that'd be really appreciated. Appreciate it. or don't you know it's your your choice on that front really um but apart from that yeah i, I think that's that's all for this week yeah well good right we'll be back next week thank you very much bye bye shut up and sit down